0: I think it's uh, just after 2.30, so we'll kick off. Uh, It's my real pleasure this afternoon to introduce uh, Lewis Bollard, who's going to be talking to us about the lessons learned in farm animal welfare. I'm sure Lewis needs an introduction, but he leads the Open Philanthropy Project Strategy for Farm Animal Welfare. So before joining Open Phil, he worked as the policy advisor and international liaison to the CEO at the Humane League uh, of the United States. Prior to that... He was a litigation fellow at the Humane Society and an associate consultant at Bain & Company. He has a BA in social studies from Harvard University and a JD from Yale Law School. So if you'd like to ask Lewis a question, please submit via the Bizabo app. uh, And please join me in warmly welcoming Lewis to the stage.
1: Cool. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, as advocates, the question we're trying to answer is how we can do the most good for farm animals. And particularly in a space with such limited evidence, I think one of the most powerful forms of evidence we can, we can look at is what has and hasn't worked recently. So in the last almost four years now, uh, we've made over 160 grants, uh, totaling almost $100 million on farm animal welfare. And today, I'm going to share a couple of the lessons that we've learned in the process. So I'm going to share uh, a couple of lessons there, first around uh, corporate reforms, what we've learned about securing them and implementing them, secondly about uh, plant-based meat and uh, the potential of the sector, the obstacles it faces, and then thirdly about where money goes in the movement and also where the animals are that need helping. So the first lesson is around corporate campaigns, and the key takeaway here is that implementation is just as important, if not more so, than securing the initial pledges. Um, But I'm going to go into a little bit of detail on that, and and first just to kind of give you some background uh, to how we reached the point we're at today and where we are today. So the corporate campaigns went far far faster than we expected. Uh, Back in late 2014, advocates started campaigning on uh, cage-free reforms, seeking to get companies to commit to uh, transitioning away from battery cages in their supply chain by specific dates. Uh, What you can see here is a photo of some particularly cool activists from the Humane League, Uh, and this is kind of a common uh, tactic of uh, really, you know, presenting a company and its customers with the very uh, stark choice of of facing an aggressive ongoing campaign or making a commitment. This uh, slide sort of tells the story of how these campaigns went. So, what you see in the blue line is the progress on USK three. That's the number million a number of millions of hens who will be K-Tree once these pledges are implemented. And in red, you see uh, progress of international K-Tree campaigns. And so what you see is prior to 2014, very few companies had made these pledges, uh, only companies like Whole Foods. In 2015, as these campaigns stepped up, first the major food service companies, uh, led by Sodexo, uh, made these commitments. McDonald's then set off a flurry of activity amongst fast food companies in doing this. Then Costco was the first major conventional retailer to come through. You then saw a kind of cascade effect across all the other retailers, including ultimately Walmart, the biggest. Globally, we've seen a similar phenomenon since these campaigns went global uh, in 2016. Seen partial or complete uh, global cage-free commitments coming from retailers like Tesco and Carrefour, food manufacturers like Nestle, Starbucks, uh, and hospitality companies like Hilton. And initially, I think we thought the lesson was just that this had been really easy and it was kind of case closed. So the, uh, as of 2016, the egg industry kind of conceded defeat. They, they said, you know, we realize the future is cage free. Cages have, have no further role. Uh, we're going to get rid of our cages. It's, it's going to take some time. It's going to cost seven to ten billion dollars for them. Uh, but you saw all the major, uh, egg producers basically making public commitments that they were starting to build out cage free. They recognized, uh, there was no future for cages. In the last couple of years, though, that started to change. So we started seeing headlines like this one from the American Farm Bureau, where egg producers were saying, well, we're actually not seeing any of these companies buying cage-free eggs. So we're scaling back our cage-free transitions. We're we're, you know, not going to necessarily make them through. We saw a survey recently from the egg industry saying they don't think most hens will be cage-free by 2025. And so this is what's really produced the, the question of how do we ensure implementation of these pledges? So this is just kind of the the state of where we're at currently. This graph shows a million hens who are currently cage-free in the United States. That's the black line. And then the uh, red line is the number who need to be cage-free for these pledges to be fulfilled completely on time. And what you can see here is we've had pretty substantial progress. So today, as of last month, about 67 million hens cage-free in the United States. That's more than four times as many hens as were cage-free before these campaigns started in 2014. Substantial progress. But we still need to get to more than 250 million hens being cage-free. And that requires a quickening of the pace. So what can we do to ensure that this pace of conversion picks up to see that companies actually follow through on these pledges? The first thing we can do is legislation. So most of you are probably aware, last year, uh, California passed a landmark ballot initiative uh, banning not just cages in the state, but also the sale of eggs from cage hens as of 2022. And this is important not just for the direct impacts, potentially up to 40 million hens could be directly impacted, but also for the effect it has on corporate supply chains. Most national corporates operate in California, and so for at least that portion of their supply chain, they're going to have to start implementing on a sooner timeline. And that's something we think is critical, is getting companies to start implementing earlier, so they're not all waiting until 2025 to go 100% K-tree. The second thing we need is public reporting of progress. So this came out two months ago. McDonald's said they're a third of the way toward being cage-free. About two million uh, hens are currently cage-free in the McDonald's supply chain. And that puts them perfectly on track to fulfill their pledge on time. Unfortunately, many companies are not yet publicly reporting their progress. They're not yet saying whether they've made any progress at all. And so this is something that advocates are going to need to put increasing pressure on, is getting companies to transparently uh, report to their shareholders, to their customers, where they're at in fulfilling these public pledges. And the third thing we need is to get a uh, partial implementation progress. And so I mainly created this slide because I wanted to create a bubble chart. Um, the, uh, but what you can see on the, the left, the higher a company is, uh, the more cage-free they are. So the further they've they've progressed on that. You can see on the on the bottom, on the x-axis, is uh, how big a company they are, basically, how much of the market they have. And the size of the bubble represents how many hens are cage-free as a result of their progress to date. So we can see as well, McDonald's is impressive, 2 million hens. It's really dwarfed by the power of some of these retailers to affect major change. And in particular, I would point you to Costco, which is now at 89% cage-free. My estimate is that's about 8.3 million hens cage-free just in Costco's supply chain. Uh, Walmart, which is only 15% cage-free, just because of its massive size, already accounts for about 6 million hens cage-free. So just between those two retailers... That's about a quarter of the hens that are cage-free in the U.S. today, just due to two retailers. And so that really shows the importance focusing on the biggest players in the room, focusing on the huge grocery chains that control the majority of where eggs go in America. So just recap the lessons there, I think one thing we're going to need to see more of a focus on is legislation to ensure that corporate pledges are enshrined into law. The second thing is going to be pushing companies to publicly report And the third thing is seeking these milestones, saying it's not enough to just publicly report you're at 0%. You need to say we're going to get to 25% by this date. We're going to make particular progress on a timeline. The second lesson uh, I want to share today is around the growth of plant-based meat and the remaining challenges uh, to the industry. So the main update here is that we've been really surprised how quickly uh, this field has grown. And so I think if you'd asked me... Uh, what was going to be the most successful IPO in 2019? would definitely not have guessed it would be Beyond Meat. Uh, we are seeing a huge excitement around that. Uh, you know, seeing last night we were able to have impossible whoppers, uh, also something I would not have predicted a couple of years ago. So we've seen a huge amount of growth. And to give you a sense of what that's coming off the back of, this chart shows meat alternatives as a category in terms of sales. And probably quite surprising to many of you will be that up until mid-2017, it was a stagnant category. So this was somewhere where we weren't seeing substantial sales growth. There was, these products were kind of relegated to a particular section of the supermarket. You had brands like Morningstar being around a long time, weren't increasing their sales substantially. And it's only in the last two years that we've seen a major trend in this, a major change in this trend. And I think that's thanks to many factors, but particularly beyond meat and Impossible Foods coming out with new, more appealing products, and in particular doing a much better job of marketing those products and setting a much higher benchmark for other plant-based companies to meet. The challenge, however, is on the pricing. So what I've uh, put together here is retail prices, average retail prices where possible, of each of these items in the United States. It's dollars per pound. And what you can see is that the products in red are the animal-based products, the products in green are the plant-based products. Uh, We're still quite a long way away from price competitiveness. So Morningstar Farms' chicken nuggets were the cheapest item I could find. This is buying them in bulk from like a Walmart somewhere in central California. And even there... They're only slightly cheaper than bacon or steak, and still about three times the price of the average national composite of chicken prices. So although we've made a lot of progress and although this this sector is growing, we're still a long way away from being price competitive. And so in this chart, I've sought to break down what's holding us back from being price competitive. So I've taken here the the cheapest uh, plant-based meat I could find on the market, Morningstar Chicken Nuggets. And compared that to the price, the average price of chicken nationally in the United States. And this is as of like last week. And what's really kind of astounding here is just how insanely cheap chicken is. So you see the USDA actually provides not just the overall retail price, but breaks it down on the wholesale side too. So you can see that producers are producing chicken for less than a dollar per pound. And when you break down what the costs are there, it's almost entirely feed. So 30% of that is everything else except for feed. It's the labor, it's the barns, it's the chicks they have to buy. Almost nothing in the scheme of this price. And then the feed they're getting is incredibly cheap feed. And they're converting it, in the case of chickens, at about a 3x ratio from feed to usable meat. So contrary to kind of what many of us might think that you know, animal agriculture is inherently inefficient, this particular part of animal agriculture is pretty efficient. And I think something we often lose sight of with plant-based meat is it's one thing to compete with burgers, it's one thing to compete with red meat, it's a whole other thing to compete with this efficiency of the broiler chicken machine. So a couple of lessons to take away from what we see in plant-based meats today. I think one is that the product actually matters, so seeing the growth that plant, uh, that Beyond Meat and Impossible Meat have brought to the market, whether that's taste or whether that's marketing. Second Chicken's going to be way harder than beef. So it's one thing to compete with beef. It's a totally different ballgame to compete with chicken, which is, of course, where the vast majority of animals are in the supply chain. And then the third thing is that the basic math of competing with chicken is we need to be able to convert feed into plant-based protein more efficiently than a broiler chicken does. A broiler chicken does it at about 3x into usable meat. And so we need to beat that ratio to be price competitive with chicken. The final lesson I want to share today is just around where money goes in the farm animal movement. So We've pulled together some new analysis both of where the money goes but also where the animals are. Uh, things which we didn't really until recently have any good data on. So this chart shows my best estimate of where money goes in the farm animal movement currently. Now these numbers might be a little big, bigger than, than what you've kind of seen previously. This is a pretty liberal interpretation of farm animal advocacy. I'm including the budgets of, of groups like PETA, at least as insofar as they're directed toward farm animal advocacy or veganism. So a lot of large organizations that you might not think of as the EA animal movement, but nonetheless are working on farm animals. So what you see here is that there's been a huge growth in the amount of money. Since just a couple of years ago, it would have been maybe a third of this amount of money involved. So a lot more money in the movement, but still overwhelmingly being spent, being directed toward the United States and Western Europe. By contrast, this is our current analysis of how many land farm animals are alive at any point in time. And this is based on uh, a new analysis by my colleague, Persis Iskander, uh, who went into all the underlying data from the FAO. And we think we have a better handle here than the FAO does on how many farm animals there are. So our best estimate is about 25 billion globally uh, alive at any point in time, land farm animals. Again, what you see is about 5.5 billion of those are in America and Western Europe All of the rest are elsewhere, and predominantly in Asia. And then this shows where the farmed fish are. So this is also an analysis from Persis based on pulling together tonnage, and and this is something we'll be sharing publicly soon. Uh, And the good news is we actually think there are a few fewer farmed fish alive at any point in time than we thought previously. We think there are about 55 billion farmed fish alive at any point in time now. Uh, but again, you see this huge imbalance between where the money is being spent and where the animals are. About three billion of those animals in the US, in Western Europe, where the vast bulk of money is being spent, the vast majority in China, Southeast Asia, and South Asia. So what can we take away from this? Well, I think the first thing is that money's growing in the movement, which is great. We're seeing a lot more money coming in. It's critical, still a lot less than we see in a lot of other movements, co- combating uh, problems on a similar scale but still an impressive scale of resources. Secondly, it's useful to know that there are about 25 billion land farm animals and about 55 billion farm fish. And third, that we should focus on Asia and that we need to get more resources going into Asia. I look forward to your questions.
0: Um, yeah, thanks very much, Lewis. Lots of food for thought. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so a few questions that uh, I had initially. So it seems like, uh, yeah, we thought the campaigns were a great success, and actually it was a bit more complicated than that. Um, On that point, the ballot in California seemed to have made a big difference. Has that made you think about pushing more funding towards getting things on the ballot?
1: Yeah, so uh, we're certainly thinking about potential ballot measures, and I know a lot of advocacy groups are thinking about that. There are constraints on the ballot measure as a form of advocacy. So um, only 24 states allow ballot measures in the, the relevant form that we want, where they can be initiated by citizens. Mm-hmm. And all of those states, many are huge ag states where we don't face much of a prospect of winning. So there are definitely more states where we could still win ballot measures. Ballot measures are expensive. Mm-hmm. And so there's always a question of whether it's worth bringing those or whether things could be achieved by other means. But it's definitely definitely on the table. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, great. And then, I mean, you you kind of, Address that in your last slide about focus outside of U- U- the U.S. and Western Europe. Um, how? What is the state of campaigns and awareness and advocacy outside of U.S. and Western Europe?
1: Yeah, I think we're at a, a much better point than we were uh, a few years ago on this score. Um, we're seeing a lot of exciting advocacy going on, for instance, in China and India. Mm-hmm. Uh, in India right now, there's a national moratorium on battery cages, uh, new battery cages being installed, thanks to advocacy there of of animal advocates in the courts. It'll probably uh, be undone by the government, um, but it's still a sign of, uh, I think, the strength of the movement there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're seeing that, too, across uh, Southeast Asia. There are a lot, a lot of uh, groups we're now seeing that were, you know, one volunteer as of a few years ago. Now maybe are one or two staff members. And I think that's a really exciting trend for people who want to support groups or want to get involved with them to see if we can build up that movement further.
0: Yeah. Um and then kind of switching to the, uh, meat alternatives in, in terms of that, uh, price comparison and, and efficiency. Um, I guess one, one question was, what is the 3x? Is that like difference in calories?
1: Oh, sorry. Yeah. The, uh, so the 3x is, uh, just by weight mm-hmm. of, of grain to weight of meat. Depends how you define it. Uh, calories, protein, uh, each produce a slightly different ratio, mm-hmm. but it's still on the same kind of ballpark.
0: Okay. And, I mean, yeah, and that seems like a very difficult kind of threshold to overcome. Do you have any broad sense of timelines of when that might become price competitive?
1: Uh, I don't know. I think you'd be you'd be better asking someone in implant-based meat. Yeah. Um, I think that you know there's obviously a ton of innovation going on there, mm-hmm. and also a ton of private sector money going into okay. the space. And I, I think you know the one thing I'd say is the importance of directing that at particularly price competitiveness, not just at, uh, you know, the kind of big brands. And so companies like Rebellious Foods who are focusing on making chicken uh, or chicken alternatives substantially cheaper, mm-hmm. I think is one of the most exciting things going on in the space.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. And then some questions from our, our audience. Um, so how much room is there for getting more of our supporters to organise around new initiatives? Uh,
1: I, I think there's hopefully a lot of room for that. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, at least amongst... Um, EA, uh, Animal Advocates, I think there's a really exciting uh, desire to kind of do new things and to work out what the most effective way to do things is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we see that across the animal movement in general. It's the, the movement has changed tremendously from where it was five years ago. Even the focus on corporate campaigns, mm-hmm. the focus on international work. So I think there's a lot of excitement about doing new things. Yeah.
0: Um. And then, I'm not sure if this this is the question, I'm not sure if the statement within it is true, but since fish (laughs) account for circa 99% of the animals killed for food, how much time and resource should should we direct towards fish advocacy?
1: Uh Uh, Yeah, so the statement uh, is true in in the sense that um, if you include wild-caught fish, Mm -hmm. and if you just look at vertebrates, uh, then uh, farmed fish do account for about 99% or more of of animals uh, killed for food. I think we should have a lot more focus on fish than we do currently uh obviously it's it's a harder thing to motivate people on it's a harder thing to mobilize supporters on uh but i also think ultimately a huge portion of our success is going to be governed by whether we make progress on fish or not Mm
0: -hmm. okay great and um in terms of that kind of change in focus how much collaboration discussion is there within the movement and and do you think we need more collaboration i mean unlikely it we need less, I guess. But, you know.
1: <laughs> uh yeah, I mean I, I think I think collaboration is is always good where possible. Um I, I think that groups do work well together. And, you know, I, I don't think um I don't think we want to impose on everyone that they need to all be doing the same thing. I think there's actually a lot of value to diversity of approaches in the movement. So in that sense, I think there can be value to less collaboration. Okay. Uh I think it's good certainly within, you know, the EA portion of the animal movement. I think people work together very well. And uh, you know hopefully that's a that's a trend we can continue
0: mm-hmm. um, and then yeah so what grants have OpenFill made in terms of that uh, community organizations and clean meat
1: uh yeah, so on the the clean meat side we haven't made any grants, uh, but we have uh, uh, been funding a chemical engineering consultant contractor who's been looking into the the question mm-hmm. and is going to hopefully publish a paper on this later this year mm-hmm. uh, and that will kind of inform our funding going forward. Uh, on the uh, movement building, community building side, most of the work we've been doing there has been um, outside of the U.S. and Western Europe, trying to help build the movement out of the country. So things like the Federation of Indian Animal Protection Organisations, which combines over a 100 grassroots groups, and we've been funding them to hold workshops to help do b- movement building in India.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um And you mentioned rebe- rebellious foods. Um So one, one question saying that they've had rebellious foods... Formly, formerly Seattle Food Tech, um, <laughs> invested in new industrial equipment for extracting protein from plants. Um, are there other ways to try to reduce the cost of chicken alternatives? I'm not sure how <laughs> how in the weeds you are with that.
1: But. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think the uh, I, I'm not technically up to date on, on the ways we could reduce the, the price of, of uh, plant-based chicken. But I do think that just having a greater focus on that end of the market, I think understandably, a lot of the companies that uh, conventional investors are most excited about a company's ending for the top, aiming for the top end of the market because there's a bigger profit margin there. And so I think somewhere where uh, EAs or people who uh, want to be impact investors can maybe have some impact is in focusing on the bottom end of the market and trying to compete much more on price uh, than we are currently. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Um, and then what was, why did you choose cage-free campaigns and plant-based meats as topic for this talk versus other interventions? Are they the kind of things that you've been spending most time on?
1: No, actually, I, I had a list of about like, 15 lessons learned, mm-hmm. and uh, you get to meet with a speaker coach before this, <laughs> and she told me that it was awful, and I needed to <laughs> just focus on three things.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, and, and you, you sort of mentioned Persis in your talk. Yep. Um, how much are you kind of growing the team at Phil, or are you kind of where are you at with that now?
1: Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Persis joined us in the last year. She's here, if you want to say hi to her. Um, yeah, she deserves a round of applause. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we, we now have a team of, of three on farm animal welfare, and I, I doubt we're going to expand it much beyond that in the foreseeable future. Um, but you know, I, I, one thing I am really excited about is there are a lot more, uh, EA animal research organizations, uh, coming up. So, Rethink Priorities would be an example. And I think a lot of that kind of capacity in answering questions um also helps us do our job well,
0: yeah um, great. Let me just see if there's any more that have come through. So it seems like a lot of people you're speaking to are american uh how do how do Americans address animal suffering? Uh, in Asia without having the kind of potential cultural conflicts that you might expect?
1: Yeah, I think that's a real challenge. I think there are a lot of people who who want to do things to help in Asia, yeah. but, you know, she's American, uh, maybe don't have a ton of context in the region. And so I think, you know, one of the things we can do is just try and direct more funding toward advocates who are in those countries. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, I think, is a number of international organizations as they've expanded, have recruited in those countries. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, the international organization can bring the framework, the administrative side, perhaps experience of what worked in one part of the world, and then can hire locally to bring people uh, there who who can sort of do things better. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, great. That's fantastic. Um, Please join me in thanking Lewis for his time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs)